0: Chapter Seventeen Part One of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. R. Omahen Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two by John Fox, Edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter Seventeen Rise and Progress of the Protestant Religion in Ireland, with an account of the barbarous massacre of 1641. Part 1. The gloom of popery had overshadowed Ireland from its first establishment there until the reign of Henry the Eighth, when the rays of the gospel began to dispel the darkness, and afford that light which until then had been unknown in that island. The abject ignorance, in which the people were held, with the absurd and superstitious notions they entertained, were sufficiently evident to many, and the artifices of their priests were so conspicuous that several persons of distinction, who had hitherto been strenuous papists, would willingly have endeavoured to shake off the yoke and embrace the Protestant religion. But the natural ferocity of the people, and their strong attachment to the ridiculous doctrines which they had been taught, made the attempt dangerous. It was, however, at length undertaken though attended with the most horrid and disastrous consequences the introduction of the protestant religion into ireland may be principally attributed to george brown an englishman who was consecrated archbishop of dublin on the nineteenth of march fifteen thirty five he had formerly been an augustine friar and was promoted to the mitre on account of his merit after having enjoyed his dignity about five years he at the time that henry the eighth was suppressing the religious houses in england caused all the relics and images to be removed out of the two cathedrals in dublin and the other churches in his diocese in the place of which he caused to be put up the lord's prayer the creed and the ten commandments a short time after this he received a letter from thomas cromwell lord privy seal informing him that henry the eighth having thrown off the papal supremacy in england was determined to do the like in Ireland, and that he thereupon had appointed him Archbishop Brown, one of the commissioners for seeing this order, put in execution. The Archbishop answered that he had employed his utmost endeavours at the hazard of his life, to cause the Irish nobility and gentry to acknowledge Henry as their supreme head, in matters both spiritual and temporal, but had met with a most violent opposition, especially from George, Archbishop of Armagh, that this prelate had, in a speech to his clergy, laid a curse on all those who should own his highness's supremacy, adding that their isle, called in the chronicles Insula Sacra, or the Holy Island, belonged to none but the bishop of Rome, and that the king's progenitors had received it from the Pope. He observed likewise that the archbishop and clergy of Amach had each dispatched a courier to Rome, and that it would be necessary for a parliament to be called in Ireland to pass an act of supremacy, the people not regarding the king's commission without the sanction of the legislative assembly. He concluded with observing that the popes had kept the people in the most profound ignorance, that the clergy were exceedingly illiterate, that the common people were more zealous in their blindness than the saints and martyrs had been in the defence of truth at the beginning of the gospel, and that it was to be feared that Shan O'Neill, a chieftain of great power in the northern part of the island, was decidedly opposed to the king's commission in pursuance of this advice the following year a parliament was summoned to meet at dublin by order of leonard gray at that time lord lieutenant at this assembly archbishop brown made a speech in which he set forth that the bishops of rome used anciently to acknowledge emperors kings and princes to be supreme in their own dominions and therefore that he himself would vote king henry the eighth as supreme in all matters both ecclesiastical and temporal. He concluded with saying that whosoever should refuse to vote for this act was not a true subject of the king. This speech greatly startled the other bishops and lords, but at length, after violent debates, the king's supremacy was allowed. Two years after this, the archbishop wrote a second letter to Lord Cromwell, complaining of the clergy, and hinting at the machinations which the pope was then carrying on against the advocates of the gospel. This letter is dated from Dublin in April 1538, and among other matters, the Archbishop says, A bird may be taught to speak with as much sense as many of the clergy do in this country. These, though not scholars, yet are crafty to cousin the poor common people, and to dissuade them from following His Highness orders. The country folk here much hate your lordship, and despitefully call you, in their Irish tongue, the blacksmith's son. As a friend, I desire your lordship to look well to your noble person. Rome hath a great kindness for the Duke of Norfolk and great favours for this nation, purposely to oppose His Highness. A short time after this, the Pope sent over to Ireland, directed to the Archbishop of Armagh and his clergy, a bull of excommunication against all who had or should own the king's supremacy within the Irish nation, denouncing a curse on all of them, and theirs, who should not, within forty days acknowledged to their confessors that they had done amiss in doing so archbishop brown gave notice of this in a letter dated dublin may fifteen thirty eight part of the form of confession or vow sent over to these irish papists ran as follows i do further declare him or her, father or mother brother or sister son or daughter husband or wife uncle or aunt nephew or niece kinsman or kinswoman master or mistress, and all others, nearest or dearest relations, friend or acquaintance whatsoever, accursed, that either do or shall hold, for the time to come, any ecclesiastical or civil power above the authority of the mother church, or that do or shall obey, for the time to come, any of her, the mother of church's opposers or enemies, or contrary to the same, of which I have here sworn unto so God, the Blessed Virgin, St. Peter, St. Paul, and the Holy Evangelists, help me, etc. is in exact agreement with the doctrines promulgated by the councils of Lateran and Constance, which expressly declare that no favor should be shown to heretics, nor faith kept with them, that they ought to be excommunicated and condemned, and their estates confiscated, and that princes are obliged, by a solemn oath, to root them out of their respective dominions. How abominable a church must that be, which thus dares to trample upon all authority! How besotted the people who regard the injunctions of such a church! In the archbishop's last-mentioned letter, dated May, 1538, he says, His Highness Viceroy of this nation is of little or no power with the old natives. Now both English and Irish begin to oppose your lordship's orders, and to lay aside their national quarrels, which I fear will, if anything will, cause a foreigner to invade this nation. Not long after this, Archbishop Brown seized one Daddy O'Brien, a Franciscan friar, who had in his possession a paper sent from Rome dated May 1538, and directed to O'Neill. In this letter were the following words His Holiness, Paul, now Pope, and the Council of the Fathers, have lately found in Rome a prophecy of one Saint Lacherianus, an Irish bishop of Cashel in which he saith that the mother church of rome falleth when in ireland the catholic faith is overcome therefore for the glory of the mother church the honor of st peter and your own secureness suppress heresy and his holiness enemies this thady o'brien after further examination and search made was pilloried and kept close prisoner until the king's orders arrived in what manner he should be further disposed of but order coming over from england that he was to be hanged he laid violent hands on himself in the castle of Dublin. His body was afterwards carried to Gallows Green, where, after being hanged up for some time, it was interred. After the accession of Edward the Sixth to the throne of England, an order was directed to Sir Anthony Ledger, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, commanding that the liturgy in English be forthwith set up in Ireland, there to be observed within the several bishoprics, cathedrals, and parish churches, and it was first read in Christ Church, Dublin, on Easter day fifteen fifty one before the said Sir Anthony, Archbishop Brown, and others. Part of the royal order for this purpose was as follows: Whereas our gracious Father, King Henry the Eighth, taking into consideration the bondage and heavy yoke that his true and faithful subjects sustained under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, how several fabulous stories and lying wonders misled our subjects dispensing with the sins of our nations, by their indulgences and pardons, for gain, purposely to cherish all evil vices, as robberies, rebellions, thefts, whoredoms, blasphemy, idolatry, etc., our gracious Father hereupon dissolved all priories, monasteries, abbeys, and other pretended religious houses, as being but nurseries for vice or luxury, more than for sacred learning, etc., On the day after the common prayer was first used in Christ Church, Dublin, the following wicked scheme was projected by the Papists. In the church was left a marble image of Christ, holding a reed in his hand, with a crown of thorns on his head. Whilst the English service, the common prayer, was being read before the Lord Lieutenant, the Archbishop of Dublin, the Privy Council, the Lord Mayor, and a great congregation, blood was seen to run through the crevices of the crown of thorns, and trickle down the face of the image. On this, some of the contrivers of the imposture cried aloud, See how our Saviour's image sweats blood? But it must necessarily do this since heresy is come into the Church. Immediately, many of the lower order of people, indeed the vulgar of all ranks, were terrified at the sight of so miraculous and undeniable an evidence of the divine displeasure. They hastened from the Church, convinced that the doctrines of Protestantism emanated from an infernal source, and that salvation was only to be found in the bosom of their own infallible church. This incident, however ludicrous it may appear to the enlightened reader, had great influence over the minds of the ignorant Irish, and answered the ends of the impudent impostors who contrived it, so far as to check the progress of the Reformed religion in Ireland very materially. Many persons could not resist the conviction that there were many errors and corruptions in the Romish church, but they were awed into silence by this pretended manifestation of divine wrath, which was magnified beyond measure by the bigoted and interested priesthood. We have very few particulars as to the state of religion in Ireland during the remaining portion of the reign of Edward the Sixth and the greater part of that of Mary. Towards the conclusion of the barbarous sway of that relentless bigot, she attempted to extend her inhuman persecutions to this island but her diabolical intentions were happily frustrated in the following providential manner, the particulars of which are related by historians of good authority. Mary had appointed Dr. Pole, an agent of the bloodthirsty Bonner, one of the commissioners for carrying her barbarous intentions into effect. He having arrived at Chester with his commission, the mayor of that city, being a papist, waited upon him. When the doctor taking out of his cloak-bag a leathern case said to him, Here is a commission that shall lash the heretics of Ireland. The good woman of the house, being a Protestant, and having a brother in Dublin, named John Edmonds, was greatly troubled at what she heard, but watching her opportunity, whilst the mayor was taking his leave, and the doctor politely accompanying him downstairs, she opened the box, took out the commission, and in its stead laid a sheet of paper, with a pack of cards, and the knave of clubs at top. The doctor, not suspecting the trick that had been played him, put up the box, and arrived with it in Dublin in September 1558. Anxious to accomplish the intentions of his pious mistress, he immediately awaited upon Lord Fitzwalter, at that time Viceroy, and presented the box to him, which being opened was nothing found in it but a pack of cards. This startling all the persons present, his lordship said, We must procure another commission, and in the meantime let us shuffle the cards. Dr. Pole, however, would have directly returned to England to get another commission, but waiting for a favourable wind, news arrived that Queen Mary was dead, and by this means the Protestants escaped a most cruel persecution. The above relation, as we before observed, is confirmed by historians of the greatest credit, who add that Queen Elizabeth settled a pension of forty pounds per annum upon the above-mentioned Elizabeth Edmonds for having thus saved the lives of her Protestant subjects. During the reigns of Elizabeth and James I, Ireland was almost constantly agitated by rebellions and insurrections, which, although not always taking their rise from the difference of religious opinions between the English and Irish, were aggravated and rendered more bitter and irreconcilable from that cause. The popish priests artfully exaggerated the faults of the English government, and continually urged their ignorant and prejudiced hearers the lawfulness of killing the Protestants assuring them that all Catholics who were slain in the persecution of so pious an enterprise would be immediately received into everlasting felicity. The naturally ungovernable dispositions of the Irish, acted upon by these designing men, drove them into continual acts of barbarous and unjustifiable violence. And it must be confessed that the unsettled and arbitrary nature of the authority exercised by the English governors was but little calculated to gain their affections the Spaniards, too, by landing forces in the south, and giving every encouragement to the discontented natives to join their standard, kept the island in a continual state of turbulence and warfare. In 1601 they disembarked a body of four thousand men at Kinsale, and commenced what they called the Holy War for the Preservation of the Faith in Ireland. They were assisted by great numbers of the Irish, but were at length totally defeated by the deputy, Lord Mountjoy and his officers this closed the transactions of elizabeth's reign with respect to ireland an interval of apparent tranquillity followed but the popish priesthood ever restless and designing sought to undermine by secret machinations that government and that faith which they durst no longer openly attack the pacific reign of james afforded them the opportunity of increasing their strength and maturing their schemes and under his successor charles the first Their numbers were greatly increased by titular Romish archbishops, bishops, deans, vicar-general, abbots, priests, and friars, for which reason, in 1629, the public exercise of the Popish rites and ceremonies was forbidden. But notwithstanding this, soon afterwards, the Romish clergy erected a new Popish university in the city of Dublin. They also proceeded to build monasteries and nunneries in various parts of the kingdom, in which places these very Romish clergy and the chiefs of the Irish held frequent meetings, and from thence used to pass to and fro to France, Spain, Flanders, Lorraine, and Rome, where the detestable plot of 1641 was hatching by the family of the O'Neills and their followers. A short time before the horrid conspiracy broke out, which we are now going to relate, the papists in Ireland had presented a remonstrance to the lord's justice of that kingdom, demanding the free exercise of their religion, and a repeal of all laws to the contrary, to which both houses of Parliament in England solemnly answered that they would never grant any toleration to the popish religion in that kingdom. This further irritated the papists to put in execution the diabolical plot concerted for the destruction of the Protestants, and it failed not of the success wished for by its malicious and rancorous projectors. The design of this horrid conspiracy was that a general insurrection should take place at the same time throughout the kingdom, and that all the Protestants, without exception, should be murdered. The day fixed for this horrid massacre was the 23rd of October, 1641, the feast of Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, and the chief conspirators in the principal parts of the kingdom made the necessary preparations for the intended conflict. In order that this detested scheme might the more infallibly succeed, the most distinguished artifices were practiced by the Papists, and their behavior in their visits to the Protestants at this time was with more seeming kindness than they had hitherto shown, which was done the more completely to effect the inhuman and treacherous designs then meditating against them. The execution of this savage conspiracy was delayed until the approach of winter, that sending troops from England might be attended with greater difficulty. Cardinal Richelieu, the French minister, had promised the conspirators a considerable supply of men and money, and many Irish officers had given the strongest assurances that they would heartily concur with their Catholic brethren as soon as the insurrection took place. The day preceding that appointed for carrying this horrid design into execution was now arrived, when, happily, for the metropolis of the kingdom, the conspiracy was discovered by one Owen O'Connolly, an Irishman, for which most signal service the English Parliament voted him five hundred pounds and a pension of two hundred pounds during his life. So very seasonably was this plot discovered, even but a few hours before the city and castle of Dublin were to have been surprised, that the Lord's Justice had but just time to put themselves and the city in a proper posture of defence. Lord Maguire, who was the principal leader here, with his accomplices, was seized the same evening in the city and in their lodgings were found swords, hatchets, pole-axes, hammers, and such other instruments of death as had been prepared for the destruction and extirpation of the Protestants in that part of the kingdom. Thus was the metropolis happily preserved, but the bloody part of the intended tragedy was past prevention. The conspirators were in arms all over the kingdom early in the morning of the day appointed, and every Protestant who fell in their way was immediately murdered. No age, no sex, no condition was spared. The wife, weeping for her butchered husband and embracing her helpless children, was pierced with them, and perished by the same stroke. The old, the young, the vigorous, and the infirm underwent the same fate, and were blended in one common ruin. In vain did flight save from the first assault, destruction was everywhere let loose, and met the hunted victims at every turn in vain was recourse had to relations, to companions, to friends. All connections were dissolved, and death was dealt by that hand from which protection was implored and expected. Without provocation, without opposition, the astonished English, living in profound peace, and, as they thought, full security, were massacred by their nearest neighbors, with whom they had long maintained a continued intercourse of kindness and good offices. Nay, even death was the slightest punishment inflicted by these monsters in human form all the tortures which wanton cruelty could invent all the lingering pains of body the anguish of mind the agonies of despair could not satiate revenge excited without injury and cruelty and cruelly derive from no just cause whatever depraved nature even perverted religion though encouraged by the utmost license cannot reach to a greater pitch of ferocity than appeared in these merciless barbarians. Even the weaker sex themselves, naturally tender to their own sufferings and compassionate to those of others, have emulated their robust companions in the practice of every cruelty. The very children, taught by example and encouraged by the exhortation of their parents, dealt their feeble blows on the dead carcasses of the defenceless children of the English. Nor was the avarice of the Irish sufficient to produce the least restraint on their cruelty. Such was their frenzy that the cattle they had seized, and by rapine had made their own, were, because they bore the name of English, wantonly slaughtered, or, when covered with wounds, turned loose into the woods, there to perish by slow and lingering torments. The commodious habitations of the planters were laid in ashes, or leveled with the ground, and where the wretched owners had shut themselves up in the houses, and were preparing for defense, they perished in the flames together, with their wives and children such is the general description of this unparalleled massacre. But it now remains from the nature of our work that we proceed to particulars. The bigoted and merciless Papists had no sooner begun to imbrue their hands in blood than they repeated the horrid tragedy day after day, and the Protestants in all parts of the kingdom fell victims to their fury by deaths of the most unheard of cruelty. The ignorant Irish were more strongly instigated to execute the infernal business by the Jesuits, priests, and friars, who, when the day for the execution of the plot was agreed on, recommended in their prayers, diligence, in the great design which they said would greatly tend to the prosperity of the kingdom, and to the advancement of the Catholic cause. They everywhere declared to the common people that the Protestants were heretics, and ought not to be suffered to live any longer among them, adding that it was no more sin to kill an Englishman than to kill a dog, and that the relieving or protecting them was a crime of the utmost unpardonable nature. The Papists, having besieged the town and castle of Longford, and the inhabitants of the latter, who were Protestants, surrendering on condition of being allowed quarter, the besiegers, the instant the townspeople appeared, attacked them in a most unmerciful manner. Their priest, as a signal for the rest to fall on, first ripping open the belly of the English Protestant minister, after which his followers murdered all the rest, some of whom they hanged, others were stabbed or shot, and great numbers knocked on the head with axes provided for the purpose. The garrison at Sligo was treated in like manner by O'Connor Sliga, who, upon the Protestants quitting their holds, promised them quarter, and to convey them safe over the Curlew Mountains, to Rokamon, But he first imprisoned them in a most loathsome jail, allowing them only grains for their food. Afterward, when some papists were merry over their cups, who were come to congratulate their wicked brethren for their victory over these unhappy creatures, those protestants who survived were brought forth by the white friars, and were either killed or precipitated over the bridge into a swift river, where they were soon destroyed. It is added that this wicked company of white friars went some time after, In solemn procession with holy water in their hands to sprinkle the river, on pretence of cleansing and purifying it from the stains and pollution of the blood and dead bodies of the heretics, as they called the unfortunate protestants who were inhumanly slaughtered at this very time. At Kilmore, Dr. Bedell, bishop of that see, had charitably settled and supported a great number of distressed protestants who had fled from their habitations to escape the diabolical cruelties committed by the papists but they did not enjoy the consolation of living together. The good prelate was forcibly dragged from his episcopal residence, which was immediately occupied by Dr. Swiney, the popish titular bishop of Kilmore, who said mass in the church the Sunday following, and then seized on all the goods and effects belonging to the persecuted bishop. Soon after this, the papists forced Dr. Bedell, his two sons, and the rest of his family, with some of the chief of the Protestants whom he had protected, into a ruinous castle, called Lochwater, situated in a lake near the sea. Here he remained with his companions some weeks, all of them daily expecting to be put to death. The greatest part of them were stripped naked, by which means, as the season was cold, it being in the month of December, and the building in which they were confined open at the top, they suffered the most severe hardships. They continued in this situation until the 7th of January, when they were all released the bishop was courteously received into the house of Denis O'Sheridan, one of his clergy, whom he had made a convert to the Church of England. But he did not long survive this kindness. During his residence here, he spent the whole of his time in religious exercises, the better to fit and prepare himself and his sorrowful companions for their great change, as nothing but certain death was perpetually before their eyes. He was at this time in the seventy-first year of his age, and being afflicted with a violent egg caught in his late cold and desolate habitation on the lake, it soon threw him into a fever of the most dangerous nature. Finding his dissolution at hand, he received it with joy, like one of the primitive martyrs just hastening to his crown of glory. After having addressed his little flock, and exhorted them to patience, in the most pathetic manner, as they saw their own last day approaching, after having solemnly blessed his people, his family, and his children, He finished the course of his ministry and life together on the seventh day of February, sixteen forty two. His friends and relations applied to the intruding bishop for leave to bury him, which was with difficulty obtained. He, at first telling them that the churchyard was holy ground and should be no longer defiled with heretics, however, leave was at last granted. And though the church funeral service was not used at the solemnity for fear of the Irish papists, yet some of the better sort, who had the highest veneration for him while living, attended his remains to the grave. At this interment they discharged a volley of shot, crying out, Resquiat in pace ultimus aglorum. That is, may the last of the English rest in peace. Adding that as he was one of the best, so he should be the last English bishop found among them. His learning was very extensive, and he would have given the world a greater proof of it had he printed all he wrote. Scarce any of his writings were saved, the papists having destroyed most of his papers and his library. He had gathered a vast heap of critical expositions of Scripture, all which with a great trunk full of his manuscripts fell into the hands of the Irish. Happily, his great Hebrew manuscript was preserved, and is now in the library of Emmanuel College, Oxford. End of chapter seventeen, part one. Recording by J. R. Omahan.